Good evening. You know, we talk a lot in the beginning about creating a field of safety, a community, and you know, it's a little abstract in the beginning. It doesn't feel, uh, and we don't feel it. It's not something that is automatic just by saying words. It's something that seems to arise out of conditions. And I don't know, just in my first glance out right now, this evening, there's just there's something special about being in a field with people that have been staying with their own experience over a number of days. And as the mind settles, awareness is getting a little bit more stable. There's an openness that starts to happen. and. It's special, something palpable. And I think this is one of the most valuable ways in community that we can be together is having these qualities start to arise. There's a willingness and an authenticity of vulnerability. We're not as kind of showcasing our personalities as much, even though that's not bad or wrong to do. It's just takes a lot of work. You'll see as soon as you say hi tomorrow to someone, if we start talking tomorrow or the next day, but you know, it's somehow these identities we wrap ourselves up in, uh, even though they can be a source of a lot of doing and energy, it's somehow what we default into. And our practice gives us other ways of defaulting in a sense of a deeper refuge that is much more reliable because anything can arise in that kind of mind, heart. You can be with other people, be with edges, challenges. And it is hard from the inside of our own mind to to sense how much the change is unfolding. From our seat, you know, as teachers, we're privileged to get to see your minds in terms of what you're presenting. We're not reading your minds, but <laughs> from what you're presenting, <laughs> we would let you know if we could read your mind. <laughs> it wouldn't be nice <laughs> to be secretively reading your mind, don't worry. I used to worry so much when a teacher could read my mind because, oh my God the things my mind was creating. (laughs) Um, I forgot what I was saying. (laughs) Anyways. So, what's alive for you tonight? What do you want to talk about? Any, anything that comes to mind you want to discuss or ask? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, is um, awareness and mind the same thing? Okay, so I'll take that first. Is awareness and mind the same thing? Typically we say awareness and mindfulness tend to be, at least amongst us, we often actually have to have a little bit of an agreement beforehand how we're using these terms because 
there's a lot of ways of using a word and what it points to. Uh, in, you know, in, in this kind of style or flavor, sometimes we use awareness to refer to the activity of the meditating mind as saying this is, this is the activity of awareness and it includes things like, and this is really saying right awareness or right mindfulness might include things like wisdom and stability of mind, effort and faith, those five spiritual faculties and mindfulness. But typically we use those two terms, mindfulness and awareness, to be the quality that, that knows and experience. Right? And it is, you know, the nice thing in, in the Dharma is qualities are very specific and they don't transmute into something else. It's not like we're being aware and then it turns into judgment. There's awareness as a factor of mind and then we could say, the, you know, another visitor comes or some other quality arises in the mind and that's judging or boredom. And sometimes it may feel as if these, these qualities, you know, are somehow melding into each other, but they're actually very distinct and they have their own unique characteristics. So the characteristic of awareness is to know, is to, is to reveal or remember what's happening. Mindfulness is the same. When we say mind in the Dharma, we're really talking about, usually it's referencing the sixth sense door, one of the sixth sense doors mind being anything that's not seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, or tactile body. So that's activity of mind. And there we would see, you know, the whole range of unwholesome states of mind and wholesome. So awareness, mindfulness, our mind, right? Then aversion, greed, delusion is mind, right? Anything like that is, you know, we'd say that's in the category of mind. So when we know how we're feeling, our mood, our emotional state, our state of mind, we'd say we're knowing our mind. Right? And that becomes more clear over time that, okay, yeah, this is, this is the mind. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting familiar with states of mind and able to track what state of mind is present, you know, which ones are, are really uh, worth cultivating when is it a defilement? You know, we almost don't even need to, to look. We can kind of sense, oh, there's an agitation here. What is that? And we can start to feel the aversion based in a, in a you know, unwise attention, a view based, you know, that's based in aversion. Some, some you know, way it, we're not seeing the Dhamma, we're seeing our, our judgment of what's good and bad, and so then we have uh, an aversive reaction. So, okay, so that was the first terminology. Um, and I'll try to make the other one quick. So, so well, that's not your fault. That was my fault. Okay. So, has most of what we've been doing falling, fall under the third foundation of mindfulness? Depends on what you've been doing, <laughs> a little bit. And, <laughs> and, and, and really, we're not, we're not necessarily... Well, a lot of people have asked this question. Uh, what, what does Utejaniya teach? Does he teach third foundation of mindfulness? Is he teaching mindfulness of mind? So I keep asking him every 
couple years, are you teaching? You know, what are you teaching? Are you teaching open awareness? Are you teaching? And he keeps saying, I'm just trying to teach as best I can the Satipatthana, the teachings on mindfulness. And he feels, for him and his style, that in order to be aware of any category of our experience, whether it's first foundation, body, breath, reflections on, on the body, or feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, or the third foundation, mind, you know, the, the presence of greed, hatred, and delusion, or the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion, which is where we might say we often see the attitude, um, or the fourth foundation, which is categories of, of experience, so being aware when hindrances are present or absent, factors of awakening are present or absent. Um, but what, what his particular emphasis, and I've really appreciated this, is in order to know any of those, one needs to know how they're observing in order to practice it with right mindfulness. So oftentimes, if we're watching the breath, there can be a lot of striving in that activity. And unless we know that, the mind can get very tired from practice and get tight. So over time, the Buddha was really encouraging a really complete knowing of both what's being known and the mind that's knowing it. And the phrase that I'd like to pull out in terms of attitude is, and this shows up throughout the Satipatthana, is, and one is observing free from desires and discontent. Free from desires and discontent. And how do we know the mind is free from desires and discontent? We need to know. We need to look at the mind. How is the mind relating? So even though there are these different foundations, each of those foundations requires knowing some aspect of the mind the attitude of the mind. And so it's, it can feel as if we're just emphasizing third foundation, but to me, this really is emphasizing how to practice any foundation skillfully. And then whatever, whatever resonates, if we want to be with the breath, we stay with the breath. Want to be with body and death contemplation, you know, that's first foundation. And then if, you know, get interested in what happens every time we take a pleasant or an unpleasant experience to mind, Oh, we get interested in the second foundation. You know, it's just just following the interest level. So we're really trying to offer you, in a way, a, the skills that you can take into into your practice and applies to whatever practice really resonates. Right, and that's only going to be the case when we when we can know our mind and our our relationship to experience. Yeah. Thank you for your question. Yeah. Although. Just, no, no, it's okay. I was just going to give, I was thinking, I'm going to give a chance for if someone that hasn't, and we're just going to start there because oftentimes we, we forget to say that's anyone that hasn't had a chance to ask a question. And, yeah. So a lot, a lot of these talks have had to do with avoiding conflict because conflict often comes from greed or delusion. But um, is there any way to bring mindfulness and awareness into well, first of all, are there times when conflict may be necessary? Particularly, I'm thinking about in these times of political and social activism yeah. when we believe that certain causes are just and we want to fight for them. Is, is that somehow related to a delusion? And if it is not, is there a way to take mindfulness into an approach to that sort of um, activity which will inevitably somehow involve conflict? Yeah, really 
very relevant question, and, and um, I think on a lot of people's minds. So the question was, um, you know, in these days particularly, and just and in general, when we see that there, you know, there there is conflict in the world, and on issue, I'm just going to try and paraphrase it best I can. You know, with with um, bringing this practice into social issues of injustice and um, you know causes that we believe are worth fighting for and might come with conflict. How do we approach that with our practice? And is every conflict going to be based in in delusion or some kind of defilement? Is that kind of, yeah. You know, there's a lot of our practice oftentimes can feel as if we might be uh, tamping down something that, you know, might, might respond skillfully externally. And because there's a lot of observing and watching, I think that can be often misunderstood. In, you know, in the Dharma at large, or even in our own interpretation, that any engagement is going to be based in, if it's, going to, if it's something that requires a lot of energy, uh, activism, that it's going to be based somehow on a defilement. And really what gets clear is that there are many different ways of being motivated to take action. Every time for me personally, when my mind has been agitated with some kind and you know with some kind of defilement let's say resistance and anger but it's not seen i can see that my desire to affect change actually gets diminished and i'm increasingly confident in my own desire to really be be a, a force for compassion wisdom kindness in the world that if I take care of my mind and I understand what's there and present, I'm not actually going to do less. And I think that sometimes the fear is that if I just watch my sense of what's right, I might just kind of hang out and, and do nothing. And it is important to remember, you know, the Buddha was free of greed, hatred, and delusion. If we believe that, that there was a mind that was completely free. So what contacted his mind no longer, there were no longer seeds for greed to arise, for aversion to arise. And yet we could say he was an activist, right? For 45 years, he woken at 35, died at 80. For 45 years, he talked, walked throughout, you know, the subcontinent, and spent a lifetime trying to correct views, trying to alleviate suffering, and talking about what leads to harmony in individually, in families, in communities, and even at the level of kingdoms in, in society. So he wasn't just isolating individual minds and say, work out your own salvation. There was a sense of interconnectedness because when the mind is free, from the obsessive tendency to be self-focused and self-worried, when it's freed from that, we say 
the, you know, there's a phrase that says the activity of emptiness is compassion, right? The, the activity of emptiness is compassion. And if we think about it, why is that? Why is that? Well, emptiness, one way of understanding emptiness is it is empty, empty of this obsessive clinging to things. So we see things as a flux, as change. We're not, we're not stuck on, on experience. So when the mind isn't stuck on experiences, it's free. It's freer to feel. And we feel sensitive, vulnerable to suffering. We're not just blind and closed down and don't want to know. Right? We look outward and we see suffering, want to do something. And that can bring a lot of energy. And it might be that, you know, it, not afraid to say, no, that's wrong. No, that's wrong. And then when the energy then comes and maybe we stop being as mindful, and we were talking to one group about this and the yogi was saying how for them, there, there is this, all this interest to engage in the world, you know, and what's right and this righteousness. But each time it turned a bit into anger, it was like they can no longer, they no longer saw the path that they're walking on. Right, and no longer felt the body. All that became real for them was this, you know, constricted sense of what is right, and the mind kind of really clinging. But then, when the mindfulness came back, there was both the knowing of what was really right and worth, worth engaging in, but the mind was also very open, and still that sensitivity is there. And that's something that I think when you hear about burnout, in trying to to engage in the world. This, this part of the experience is missing, I think, which is we have to know what's happening here. We have to know. If I want to engage with you well, I need to know what's here as well. Right, and you know, when Carol was mentioning the Dalai Lama and Archbishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu about this, this radical kind of aliveness and joy in the midst of tragic suffering, you know, they were not, they're not having seen endless, 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 just stories, witnessing stories, you know, violence and terrible conditions. There's a sense of renewal, of meeting, of open. And even in the midst of all that, there's this ongoing, you know, ability to be, to be free, right? And to meet. But if we take in every suffering and wears us down, I mean, we kind of lose the ability to continue. You know, so it's not, it's not just anger that allows us to, to really act skillfully in the world. There's wisdom that can be a motivation, compassion can be a motivation. And when those are really clearly there, there's no fear. I just, yeah, I will do what I can because we're not afraid, you know, we're not afraid. You know, we can say one, one of the benefits of coming on retreat is it frees us up to, to look in places that we might be contributing unconsciously to injustices. And, you know, IMS is doing a lot of work around race, race, you know, unconscious biases that are still present and you know, conditioning that's here. And it's, you know, when Joseph talks about what was shocking to him, and he can be very transparent about this, was he couldn't believe, not 
what was more unbelievable to him in a way personally was not how white IMS had been over the years, but how blind he was to it. Wow, you know, and that takes a willingness to say, wow, I was blind to that. You know, I didn't know. I didn't realize for me, I, you know, it's my familiar place. I'm not looking there. So we have to look to start to, to reveal what we're missing. Thanks. I'll go to the gentleman who had raised their hand before, and then we'll go to you. Great. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, great. Uh, my question is, uh, where does laughter and kind of like a lighter mind come into it? Because I know that you're talking about kind of using thoughts, you have to use thoughts in a way, so I was asking myself questions when I was sitting. Too stiff? Am I am I being too focused and concentrated? Because that was my past experience of being very focused, like one pointed, and I mm-hmm. found it was mm-hmm. stiffness. So I, as I was asking myself questions, my mind answered, kind of like in a funny way, like I'm kind of like silly in my normal life, uh, trying to keep things light, and so I'm sitting there, and then I, I my mind was just doing all this stuff. It was like singing and, I don't know, it was like, like, la, 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 la. It was like, just like a kid. It was just joking. And then I just found, I just felt so relaxed. Yes. It just like released. And then I actually, I felt like when I was a kid in church and you were with your parents and everybody's quiet and I was like, I'm like, I wanted to burst. But, you know, so I just like, I went into the breathing and I relaxed and then it kind of just settled and then, then my mind was stopped doing that. But, Right. Yeah. So where 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 does happiness and play and joy come into the into the into the Dharma? Yeah. Did it feel like rapture? <laughs> right. There, there are so many nice, wholesome states that are part of the Dharma, and I, you know, it, it is that I. I have yet really to meet someone I feel who has been practicing and practicing well, who doesn't seem over time lighter, right? More joyful. And you can see when the mind gets, you know, really serious and it just happens, it happens all the time. You get, you know, serious in the sense of it's getting controlling and tight and probably a lot of shoulds, right? Should and shouldn't internally. I don't, you know, listen to that. What happens when the mind starts saying, this should be, I, sh- I need to be this way, shouldn't be, shouldn't, should. You know, it's very tight. And it's a way, it's like a denial of experience. It's a cutting off. And we do it internally, then of course we do it to people around us. Right? You shouldn't do that. 
You know, I remember sitting one of my first retreats. I was like, I shouldn't even swallow. <laughs> right? Shoulds get so powerful. It's like, you shouldn't even swallow. And then it's like, then of course you have a swallowing like storm. Whereas like <laughs> one swallowing after another. And I thought, I'm the worst yogi in the world and everyone is being irritated right now by my swallowing. <laughs> you know, and I hadn't been taught yet. Like that's nature because it was still like me swallowing. So I was like, don't swallow and don't move. You know, we hear someone else breathe. <laughs> it's like, they shouldn't be breathing. <laughs> so, yeah, and that's, it's just what we do. It's what we do with ourselves. So I think, you know, when you notice what happens when joy comes to mind, you really want to be your own teacher over time. What is it that, what is it that supports my mind in this moment to be open, to be relaxed? What, what is it that I need? You know, and we're mostly going to be alone in the practice. We can listen to a lot of Dharma. We're mostly, you know, going to be alone. And so the, you know, encouragement really in the Dharma is we, we have to listen, kind of like the Buddha gave this analogy of tuning ourselves, like a musical instrument, so you tune. And when do I need to give a little more energy to practice or a little more interest just interest, not trying, but interest. And then when am I trying too hard? And it's just joy, you know, playfulness. And you know, for my own part, if I've been, if I've appeared too serious up here, it's only out of fear. <laughs> I'm not trying to be serious because I know for myself, when I'm more relaxed and easeful, my mind learns. It's just much more open. Yeah. Have you asked a question before? Yeah, no, go ahead. What your own mind is saying. Yeah. I've let myself yeah. listen to this for so long. It almost made me laugh because it was so outrageous. You know, so it's just so funny that, to me, that it kind of goes along those lines of humor, I guess. Yeah. Just, um, so I, like, I, um, this is new to me, this, this practice. So I guess, uh, you know, talking about emotions, but actual phrases like thought forms or thoughts. Yeah. But I've been letting it control my life, <laughs> or like my attitude or my experience. For, right. You know, yeah. Like, it's almost, it's, well, anyway. Yeah, so just noticing, to, to say, noticing that um, there are these uh, phrases coming to mind and words, thought forms arising, and 
seeing that most of them are pretty ridiculous. Uh, and, and actually in the past really determining uh, the reality, you know, and, and, and it's, you know, connecting to the other question that in fact, for you, there was a sense of, wow, this is unbelievable. These are totally ridiculous statements my mind is making, right? And that ability of being able to kind of see it as something that is funny, that's wisdom in the sense of we're not taking it personally. We just hear a voice in the mind, which is always chatting, chattering away. It's just conditioning. Words, thoughts come to mind. There's a Ajahn Sumedho, I may have referenced him before. He's, you know, a monk, forest monk who, uh, he said he had a phrase that came to mind. It was uh, something like, Gwendolyn, who art thou to me? <laughs> and he said for weeks, that <laughs> this phrase just kept going, Gwendolyn, who art thou to me? And he's like, I, I've never known a Gwendolyn. <laughs> and so he was plagued because he was like trying to figure out Gwendolyn and what does this mean? And, and then eventually, like, he just realized, oh, it's just the mind, just making associations and, and ridiculous, you know. Hopefully you don't start having this <laughs> recurring thought. <laughs> Usually we don't name any songs, because that's like, or you don't want to put songs into someone's mind. Um, but thoughts that are not seen, a lot, most of our identity, moods, conditioned by some unseen thoughts. Yeah, and we are conditioned by a lot of thoughts you know, that uh, we have about ourselves. A lot of them are very painful. You know, a particular uh, you know, defilement for me you know, is uh, shame, very powerful shame. And after, you know, because public speaking is, you know, has been an edge for me, so getting less, even though Steve was poking me the other night. <laughs> so, you know, and then it, it became less leading up to it, but much more afterwards. Oh, you know, how terrible, and, you know, all the things. But over time, it's like what started to happen was, I was sharing this in one group, I could see the thought arising, and it would be like, oh, that's, a, that's the shame thought. And it would be saying like, you know, believe me, believe me, you are awful. (laughs) And I would just look at it and I'd go, okay, (laughs) let's go suffer together. And I was like, the mind willingly following a thought like that, why on earth would it do that? Because it's familiar, right? It's all, it's like so seductive. But that's the process. We see it, we see it, and eventually it loses some power. But I'm just amazed at how, how easy it is for our mind to be convinced by something that we know. In some ways, we start to already recognize. But because it's so familiar, it almost is scarier to not, to let it go. Right? But that is what happens with wisdom. It will let go. You know, and they say in Tibetan practices, they teachings, I think they say something like, and I've shared this before, so I hope it's right, but it's something like, you know, the first hundred thousand times of something happening, you just start to 
feel like something's there, like following you. It's like something there, you know. And then you know, the next hundred thousand times, you 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 know begin to turn around and look at it, you know. And and then another hundred thousand times, it's like oh, I, I'm starting to get this. That's all it is. You just see it enough times. So. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, when I practice and I kind of wait for awareness to show up, uh-huh. um, it might be infrequent. Uh-huh. But I've been playing around with <laughs> kickstarting it with more alertness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or, or too much seeking. Right, Even right. Results in a sustained, I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, I don't sense it. I mean, the way for me that I, I feel into whether or not I'm striving with trying to practice is kind of checking this emotional state of, does it feel like I'm getting stressed at all? So there's nothing wrong with inclining the mind towards the Dharma. And we can really do that in an active way, in a way, and, and part of it may just be kind of interest, really opening the mind to Dharma, questioning like, is some experience really solid? You know, what is solid in experience? And you kind of really write with that. And it might sound like a lot of doing, but all it does really is bring the mind a lot of interest into what's arising in the present moment. So you have to just check for yourself, like, is this doing extra? Can I, can I allow the, the working of the, of the mind, these factors of mind, just to work, and it doesn't need any extra pushing? But there's nothing wrong with also supporting the practice to be, to be there, to be awake, and play with it. And it sounds like that's what you're doing a little bit, is you're playing with not doing and letting the awareness arise on its own. And then sometimes there's maybe, maybe feels like there's some more doing, right? And, but don't worry, just more watch that kind of not sure, am I doing or not doing? Am I trying to do too much? Listening to that also, which may be some habit of mind that is worth just noticing as it arises. Am I getting this perfectly right? I've got to get this perfectly right in order to, if that's there, you know, just as naming some, some, it's like, 
what else can I be, what else is worth noticing in this moment that is worth paying attention to, right? And if there is something and you have that sense of openness, defilements will make make themselves known because they have a sense of suffering in them, right? They come with suffering. So as we get more skilled with saying with our experience, the wisdom will track it. It will know there is some some way I'm using my mind that is based in craving or aversion, right? And that's the benefit of really appreciating dukkha, really being able to be okay with suffering because it can be a guide, right? It can be a guide in how we're speaking, how we're acting, how we are in the moment, if we're willing to listen. Because it'll point, it'll point to the Four Noble Truths. That's what, you know, the Buddha was saying, that if, if we open to suffering, right, we will find that there's a cause. And that cause is very immediate. Right? It's not something that we have an idea about. This cause is based because the mind is clinging, resisting, reacting. And so when that cause has been let go of, then again, the mind is open there, present, right? So, so you can use the kind of investigation in how you're practicing as a way of refining your level of how much should I do or how much should I just allow the mind to unfold. And, and we need to go in a way to both edges. So sometimes if there's momentum, just let the mind do. Let the awareness practice. Let the wisdom practice. Don't even do anything. That's going to be another level of understanding what we say is not self. Oh, these are also factors of mind, right? They just operate. Okay. Yeah. So this is maybe a little more philosophical question. But if we use the analogy from the other night with the defilements, and we're successful in kicking them out of the house and changing the locks. If we're successful in what? Kicking them out of the house and changing the locks. Okay. Right. So what is left after the defilements go? Are we just empty house? (laughs) 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 Uh, There was a wonderful teacher um, from Burma, Deepama, this woman who, I think she was later, actually practicing a bit later in her life, when she really engaged in practice because she had lost um, both her husband and daughter, two children, two kids. So a lot of suffering and it happened all very, in a short period of time and she knew the Dharma, right? So she went into intensive practice and was an extraordinary yogi, had very deep insights very quickly and became a very beloved teacher, you know, of Joseph and many others. Um, And I think she was here when someone asked her once, you know, "What, what is in your mind? Uh, you know, just ordinary walking around, what, what, what's in your mind? Because she was known to be very free of, the, of these defilements. And I believe she said something like awareness and loving kindness. But I, what did she say? Concentration and metta. Concentration and metta and loving kindness. 
So there, what she abided in basically was a mind that was stable and filled with this loving awareness, loving, loving quality that was meeting whatever was seen, whatever was heard, whatever was felt. And, you know, imagine walking around with a mind that's like that, right? Very stable, present, meeting what is contacting it with metta. That's not bad. <laughs> so there's positive, there's a lot of positive emotions, right? There's, there's loving kindness, there's compassion. So things that aren't rooted in these energies of denying, pushing, aversion, of clinging, grasping, or of delusion, what is left, are, those are the very wholesome states of mind. You know, the mind is free, free to feel and to be present. Just we're not as obsessed. So what is a mind like when it's not obsessed? You know, what is it like? Very responsive, it's open, vulnerable. I like saying vulnerable because I'm very vulnerable. (laughs) So I'm hoping I'm on the right track. And thought comes up. And yeah. I'm reasonably aware and focused. Not focused, but aware and relaxed. Uh, hatred and greed is relatively easy to at least identify. Mm-hmm. Delusion. If I'm deluded, how do I know it's a delusion? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, as the mindfulness is getting more established and thought arises and it's becoming easier to see, you know, when it's based in greed or aversion, that's getting clear. But when the mind is deluded, how do we see delusion? Uh, Yes, Carol? You're looking at me like I was getting... (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's delusion. I'm I'm manifesting... This is part of the teaching. I'm manifesting delusion. <laughs> I project a lot onto Carol. I'm always thinking that she's trying to... <laughs> so, one second. <laughs> oh, next question. <laughs> uh. So delusion, yeah, the not knowing of the mind, the quality that doesn't know. So delusion as, as a function cannot know, right? It doesn't know. And we're not going to be really in a deluded state and have delusion self-recognize. It, it, it's not going to happen. But what can happen is when the mind is clear, it starts to recognize what is the nature of delusion? And often it may be a little retroactively, where right? we come back into kind of a clear moment of knowing, and we feel, oh, the mind, the mind, you know, one basic way of being deluded is just we forget our experience, we forget what's been happening. We say, oh, that's delusion. But we can also then forget the basic characteristics of experience, right? We forget things are impermanent. So there can be a little bit of presence, awareness that's there, 
And we can also then start to sense this factor of delusion. Oh, the mind is clinging, attaching. Right, so that's, that's delusion. We're based in delusion, not understanding things are not self. They're just causes and conditions, not belonging, not in our power to control. And so the mind really over time, as, as the wisdom starts to grow, we get really, it just gets better at, at beginning to sense when delusion is present. Behind every defilement also, there needs to be delusion, right? If we didn't have delusion in the mind, there wouldn't be a defilement. In order to be aversive to something, we have to have the basic delusion that doesn't understand causality, causes and conditions coming together and this happening. Right, so in in a group I was mentioning, you know, someone comes, comes to you and says something aggressive and angry and we get angry back, that's delusion. It's aversion, but it's also delusion because the delusion is basically saying, you shouldn't be angry. You shouldn't be saying something that's hurtful. But wisdom, right? Wisdom understands if the conditions are there and the other person's mind is filled with agitation, with fear, lack of awareness, what should happen with that mind? It's lawful, right? They're gonna speak unskillfully. Not that they should, meaning that's the right thing to be doing, but the conditions are there for unskillful speech to come. So there we can see how delusion then in the mind would trigger our own aversion back. You know, if we're not being, if we're not practicing, we're not gonna see that. Right, so, so every defilement comes with it. So when you're seeing greed, greed and aversion, you can start to investigate, oh, what's the delusion here? What's the wrong view, right? Because wrong view is the opposite of delusion. So that's just some ways, and we can, we really can, exp- that's, it's a, there's, there's really so many ways the mind is deluded. <laughs> so many. <laughs> yes, Anna. Um, so, having super disturbed sleep, mm. including nightmares, yeah. and waking up all night long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the last couple of days I've been like, well, great, I'm just going to practice all night. Like, it's mm-hmm. fine. I'll just, if I wake up, I'll just practice. Yeah. And the last couple of nights, um, the nightmares have been like an added part of this package of waking up a lot. Like really vivid, super scary. Like I'm screaming. Uh, I'm not allowed, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. In, um, so in the nightmare, you're really screaming. Or you're waking up screaming. I'm waking up in my head screaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That moment is so hard to practice in because I'm so terrified or I'm so mad that I'm not sleeping and I'm so attached to wanting to be asleep. And then I'm like foggy for the rest of the So there's just like yeah. so many yeah. great conditions for practicing. And yeah. Just like wondering what, if there's like, I'm already seeing, but like what could kind of. Something that could help. 
I mean, it doesn't sound like you're not able to be aware. What it sounds like is these experiences are so intense. So just to name what she was, could you hear in the back? No, okay, so there was, um, they, were, they were mentioning the uh, insomnia and trouble sleeping and nightmares that have been ensuing and trying to use the experience to, uh, you know, just to practice. If I'm, not, if I'm not able to sleep, then I'm just going to use it to practice. But waking up from a nightmare is so intense and so overwhelming and inwardly there's this, you know, just very strong experience it doesn't feel like there's any kind of way to to meet that. The mind is just so overwhelmed, right? And and what to do? I don't hear that you're not actually able to know it. And and this is this is going to happen often. We often know what we're experiencing, but it's such a strong object, such a strong experience that it is it doesn't it overwhelms the awareness and the wisdom. So there's no equanimity, right? At those times, we really just do the best we can to do whatever we can to support the mind. Anything, really anything. You know, and at least that's my approach, which is, I mean, yeah, you can look around, you know, play music. Anything, really anything. Because all you're really doing there is allowing the mind to take an object, an experience, that will, that will actually grow these factors of mind back. Awareness and wisdom start to increase again. And just recognize, yes, when we're overwhelmed, the mind's, the mind's overwhelmed. Right now, it's too much to bear. And, but bringing in some, if you can, you drop in some wisdom in the sense of, okay, this is really strong. And I've maybe seen it before, it's gonna pass. Let me just hang out with it. Let me just hang out. It will pass, it's impermanent. So any ways that you can Remind your mind in the midst of a really intense difficulty that's starting already to change the relationship and you're giving the mind some more support to be with this. Uh, I was listening to a talk somewhat recently by a Tibetan monk, um, Anantupten, I think his name is, and he was describing some very serious pain that he was going through. And, you know, and they were giving him painkillers in the hospital. And he was, you know, he was saying he's like this international Buddhist teacher, meditation teacher. And so he's telling people all the time how to watch pain. And, you know, it's just, it's, you know, it's unpleasant. You can be with it, you know, all all these encouragements. And then he, he said in the hospital, the pain was, he said, just, so strong and overwhelming. You know, and describing kind of rolling around. And he said he really learned what it meant to surrender at that time. Because until that time, he was trying to get it right somehow. Trying to get it right in terms of not actually experiencing what he was experiencing, which was he was, he was in pain. Right, and there was some way that his mind was still kind of saying it ought to look different. And you know, how is it going to look? You know, particularly as we're kind of going through aging processes, much you know in the later stages of life, it's oftentimes going to be a lot of pain. You know, if that happens, and I think if we have ideas that we're not not supposed to be experiencing what we're experiencing, 
there can be a subtle or, or not so subtle way that we're still uh, struggling. And there may be, you know, ways that are kind of waiting for the mind to really, really let go. And knowing that, yeah, at times pain just, okay, pain is overwhelming. Oh, that's what's happening. It's overwhelming. And then not, you know, we do what we can. You know, we take the medication for the pain. But anyways, yeah, so it's important when when we're really caught and overwhelmed by experience, just to recognize, yeah, this is very powerful. Knowing it's a storm, each time we visit that storm, there's a little bit more familiarity. This storm is impermanent. It's impermanent. You know, and it's not going to last forever. It's not who I am. It's not going to kill me. You know, and so I, you know, this is kind of the process I went through in terms of this, this experience of being in front of people and talking, which is, mind could create such a huge storm, so, so powerful, so unpleasant. But the more times I visited it, the more, the more it became familiar as a pattern. You know, and I used to complain to Carol about this uh, state, you know, of mind. So she lovingly said, oh, don't worry, it's just a deep psychological neurosis. (laughs) Filled with love and compassion. I was like, oh, that makes me feel a lot better. (laughs) Just a deep psychological, so it really stuck with me. Oh, it's just a deep psychological neurosis. (laughs) So don't worry, it's just a deep psychological neurosis. That's all we are. <laughs> Packets of deep psychological nurses. Slowly unwinding. Yeah. So. Okay. Let's sit together for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.